Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. The world of Sufism is very diverse. While the core of the tradition is basically kept intact, one very prominent aspect of tasawwuf, which is the Arabic word for Sufism, is that it exists in many different local variants and flavors. This is of course especially true for its aesthetic expressions, such as poetry for example. Sufis have always taken inspiration from local forms of music and poetry in different languages to express the deepest mystical experiences. We've already talked about some of the most famous of the Arabic Sufi poets such as Abu Hassan al-Shushtari and Ibn Arabi, but arguably the most important and famous in the whole category of Arabic Sufi poetry is the Egyptian Sufi mystic Ibn al-Farid whose masterful verses were revolutionary in the genre and which in some ways have never really been paralleled in their incredibly beautiful expressions of mystical love and unity. While the great and controversial Ibn Arabi, who is a revered poet himself, can probably be said to be the most influential and famous Sufi metaphysician and theorist in Islamic history, his contemporary Ibn al-Farid is more renowned in the realm of poetry in particular. His ways of expressing the experiences of Islamic mysticism and the Sufi way in Arabic became paradigmatic in later periods and his poems are still popular today, especially in his native Egypt where they are often sung both during formal Sufi gatherings and in more public slash popular events. Omar ibn Ali ibn al-Farid was born in the year 1181 in Cairo, Egypt. The name Ibn al-Farid means literally son of the women's advocate, referring to his father's legal profession. But in later periods, he would also be referred to as Sultan al-Ashiqin, the Sultan of Lovers, due to his high status as a Sufi mystic. His family was rather well off, and young Omar received a proper education, including in religious sciences. 
He studied and followed the Shafi'i school of Islamic law and seems to have become an expert on hadith, the stories and traditions of the Prophet Muhammad. For basically all of his life, he would remain associated with the cultural elite of Cairo, as he gradually became a very respected and renowned poet, who would participate in gatherings where poetry would be recited and shared. He also seems to have earned his living teaching poetry and hadith. Clearly, and confirmed by reports, he also at a young age became involved with Sufism, the mystical tradition of Islam, and basically all of his poetry fall within the Sufi tradition. Now the details of his life are a bit hard to get at with certainty. The earliest biographical accounts we have of him are actually from people who were his students basically, so people who knew him, and from these accounts, which are actually very rudimentary, very just sort of a summary of his life basically, nonetheless it becomes clear that during his own lifetime and very shortly afterwards, he was primarily famous as a poet, right? He was famous as a very renowned and very respected uh, poet in Egypt, uh, and not necessarily for being some kind of Sufi master or Sufi saint, which would be his reputation later on. These early biographies do confirm that he was involved with mysticism or Sufism in his life, uh, but that does not seem to have been the main source for his fame, or at least these biographies do not go into any sort of detail about his life as a Sufi. It's really only with another biographical, or really a hagiographical account, by his grandson Ali that we get any details about this stuff. This account, while somewhat authoritative due to having access to family members who knew the poet, should be read cautiously with a grain of salt, since it clearly has the aim of highlighting the saintly nature of his grandfather. Because after his death, Ibn al-Farid would become increasingly known as not just a great poet, but as an accomplished mystic and even a saint who had reached the heights of mystical insight. And reading his actual poetry, this isn't, to be fair, all that hard to believe. Like we said, he was born and lived in most of his life in Cairo, but it also seems that he spent a significant amount of time of his life in Mecca. Stories tell of how, as a young man, he would accompany his father to his work as a woman's advocate, but that he would often instead retreat to the hills outside the city to wander and contemplate. In other words, he already had a clear spiritual drive as a youngster. In one such legendary story, it is said that Ibn al-Fadid encountered a Sufi saint while wandering the hills outside Cairo. This saint told him that he should go to Mecca to find enlightenment. When Ibn al-Farid commented that Mecca is indeed very far away, the saint suddenly says, it's right there, and as Ibn al-Farid turns around, he sees Mecca right in front of him. A fantastical tale to be sure, but it does corroborate the idea that Ibn al-Farid went to Mecca at some point, perhaps for as long as 15 years. Here he seems to have studied and learned quite a bit, including poetry, hadith, and probably also Sufism because he then returned to Cairo 15 years later as an accomplished scholar and poet. And as we said earlier, he would spend the rest of his career teaching poetry and hadith in the prestigious Al-Azhar Mosque, the greatest seat of learning in Cairo and really, at least today, in the entire Sunni Muslim world. In other words, unlike many of his Sufi peers, who were often more associated with the poor, Ibn al-Farid was very much a part of the cultural elite of the city. At the same time, though, he seems to have stayed away from political power as such. There are no poems in his diwan dedicated to political leaders, something that was very common for an accomplished poet at this time. It thus seems that he followed the 
relatively common Sufi principle of disassociating directly with royalty and the political elite to focus on renunciation and the spiritual path. And that path would indeed be very important to Ibn al-Farid and his life. While his fame during his lifetime surely stemmed primarily from his poetry, he seems to have been deeply involved with mysticism, and shortly after his death, people started talking about him as an accomplished and enlightened mystic who had verified the truth of reality. Indeed, the famous Sufi Sa'id ad-Din al-Farghani, an early follower of the school of Ibn Arabi, who also commented on Ibn al-Farid's greatest work, which we will return to soon, said this about the poet, quote, After his vicissitudes in the valleys and peaks of love, and after his evolving stages among the lofty mountains of proximity to God, he was acquainted with the splendors of the beauty of this exalted reality to the most perfect degree, beyond the veils of the robe of his pride. So he devoted himself to spending the rest of his life and the next in stringing the necklace of unique and guarded pearls, in order to clarify the requirements of the mystical station. And other biographies, such as the aforementioned Dibaja by his grandson Ali, also attest to the great mystical fervor of our friend Omar. He is portrayed as an inspired mystic, prone to bouts of ecstasy where he would experience a uniting with God and the oneness of existence, after which he would compose his poetry in the state of ecstatic inspiration. Now, for those of you unfamiliar with Sufism, this is often referred to as Islamic mysticism. It's a certain path and tendency within Islam, which is heavily ethical and focused on traveling on the spiritual path to intimacy with God. It involves a process of turning away from your nafs, or ego, or independent self, until it is completely annihilated, what is known as fana, or literally annihilation. In many Sufi circles, these highest stages of that path are described as a union with God, a realization that the underlying essence of reality is oneness, and that all that truly exists is God. And reading Ibn al-Fadid's poetry, it becomes clear that he certainly holds to this kind of monistic view of reality. To reach this experience, the Sufis adopted practices like dhikr, remembrance, where names of God or the Islamic proclamation of faith were chanted for long periods of time, often also in a group setting. This practice of dhikr has the purpose of remembering God and forgetting everything else, including your own self, which will hopefully eventually lead to a unitary experience. Ibn al-Fadid would have participated in such common Sufi practices, and he refers to them frequently in his poetry. Quote, I pray and so chant when I recite in memory of her and I delight in the prayer niche while she is my imam. And on pilgrimage in a pure state, I cry Labeika in her name, and I see restraint to be the breaking of my fast. At the same time, when talking about Sufism, we should be clear about the fact that these Sufis were devout Muslims. While practices like dhikr are unique to Sufis, basically all Sufis also perform the regular observances of the Islamic religion, praying five times a day, fasting, going on pilgrimage to Mecca, etc. They followed Islamic law and were often indeed especially strict in their observance of Islamic law. Ibn al-Fadid was no different, and he often talks about the fact that even when a Sufi has reached the state of union, he still has to perform all his duties and rituals as a Muslim. This is very important to remember. 
But Sufi he certainly was and participated in the vibrant Sufi environment of 13th century Egypt. Another form of the larger category of dhikr, or remembrance, is another common Sufi practice called sama'a, which literally means listening or audition. This is a practice that involves listening to recited poetry or music as a spiritual observance. Poetry would be recited, often with the accompaniment of musical instruments and sometimes even dance, which would help the Sufi practitioner reach a higher spiritual state, even to the experience of ecstasy or wajd. The power of music to move the human soul was not lost on these Muslims, and sama' was, and still is, a very powerful spiritual technique. While not accepted by all Sufis, sama' has been a popular practice across history. It's been made famous by its more elaborate examples, such as the whirling dervishes of the Mevlevi order. Ibn al-Fadid seems to have been especially fond of Sama'a. There are many stories of how he would participate in such musical assemblies and fall into ecstatic states as a result. In one, Ibn al-Fadid spontaneously enters a state of wajd as he simply hears the singing of some people walking by him in the marketplace. Quote, A group of guards passed by Ibn al-Fadid while they were beating clappers and singing. Upon hearing these verses, Ibn al-Fadid shouted out and danced in the marketplace. This attracted a large crowd of people, many of whom fell to the ground in ecstasy as the guards continued to sing. Similarly, another account by the theologian Abdul Ghaffar al-Qusi states that a musical sama' session wasn't complete unless Ibn al-Fadid attended. Quote, it is related that if an audition were held in Cairo or Fustat and the Sheikh Sharaf al-Din Ibn al-Fadid did not attend, that it would not be delightful. So it happened that someone invited the sheikh and held an audition for him. But the sheikh was dispirited, and so the occasion was ill at ease because the sheikh was. So the host was pained, but the eloquent singer said to him, Give me ten dinars, and I'll delight the sheikh for you. The host replied, Fine. So the singer asked God's help and recited. Then he recited some poetry. Then the sheikh Ibn Farid arose and went into ecstasy, and with that, a splendid moment passed over all. Ibn al-Farid's love for Sama' was no secret to anyone indeed. And even in his own poetry, he expresses this love for the practice. In what is, in my opinion, one of the most beautiful sections from his masterwork called the Ta'iyya al-Kubra, which we'll return to later, he explores the theme of Sama' and music through a metaphor of a baby being soothed by the singing of lullabies a section so profoundly beautiful that I have to quote it in full, in the beautiful translation by the late Emil Homerain. Quote, When the infant moans from the tight swaddling wrap and restlessly yearns for relief from distress, he is soothed by lullabies and lays aside the burden that covered him. He listens silently to one who soothes him. The sweet speech makes him forget his bitter state and remember a secret whisper of ancient ages. His state makes clear the conditions of Sama'a and confirms the dance to be free from error. For when he burns with desire from lullabies, anxious to fly to his first abodes, he is calmed by his rocking cradle as the hands of the nurse gently sway it. I have found in gripping rapture when she is recalled in the chanter's tones and the singer's tunes what a suffering man feels when he gives up his soul when messengers of death come to take him. One finding pain in being driven asunder is like one pained in rapture yearning for friends. The soul pitied the body where it first appeared, and my spirit rose to its high beginnings. 
My spirit soared past the gate opening to beyond my union, where there is no veil of communion. The singing of the musicians is represented by the nurse who sings lullabies to the child. She rocks him in her arms, representing the dance of the Sufi that often accompanies such music, all of which reminds the soul of its origins in unity with God and helps him or her return to that state of oneness. It's incredible stuff. And his poetry itself seems to have come from such ecstatic states. Indeed, biographies tell of how he would enter a kind of trance, become completely enraptured by divine inspiration for hours or even days sometimes, and when he returned to his senses, he would spontaneously compose his poems. Quote, The sheikh, in most of his moments of inspiration, was always perplexed, eyes fixed, hearing no one who spoke, not even seeing them. Sometimes he would be standing, sometimes sitting, sometimes he would lie down on his side, and sometimes he would throw himself down on his back wrapped in a shroud like a dead man. Ten consecutive days, more or less, would pass while he was in this state, neither eating, drinking, speaking, or moving. Then he would regain consciousness and come to, and his first words would be a dictation of what God had enlightened him with of the ode Nazma Suluk. So what are these poems that he's so famous for? Inspired by a divine ecstasy or written by a master of language, regardless of which of these is true, it's clear that Ibn al-Farid wrote some amazing verses. Now, the Diwan of Ibn al-Farid, that is the uh, collection of his poetry or his full body of work, is relatively small compared to some of his other some of his peers, such as Ibn, Ibn Arabi, for example, or, or Ashushtari, what is there is incredibly impressive. And once we dive deeper into his poetry and, and those poems that are there, shorter in number as they may be, we quickly realize why he's considered one of the most um, influential and, and greatest in history. The poetry of Ibn al-Farid is arguably all concerned with the Sufi path and longing for God. It's a poetry of remembrance, of dhikr, that central aspect and practice of Sufism. To remember the divine and express that ineffable love that pulls the mystic towards the essential core of his reality, which is God. But these Sufi themes are often clothed in the common language of the Arabic poetic tradition, which functions as metaphors for this mystic quest. The theme of love is one of the most recurring in all of his works. This is both metaphorical and direct, the language of lover and beloved and the passionate longing of the lover to come closer to and unite with his beloved is a theme that he explores in many of his verses. It isn't for no reason that he is known as the Sultan al-Ashiqin, the Sultan of Lovers. While all of his work is revered, he is arguably most famous for two poems in particular, one of which is known as Al-Khamriya, or the Wine Ode. In this shorter poem, he uses the imagery of wine and intoxication to express the divine love that extinguishes the self and leads to an annihilation of that self. The wine represents love, that all-encompassing love that overwhelms the soul, and intoxication or drunkenness is the ecstatic mystical state that results from that love. Sharibna ala dhikr al-habibi mudamatun, sakirna biha min qabli an yakhlaqul karbu. In memory of the beloved, we drank a wine. We were drunk with it before creation of the vine. The poem delights in the transformative power of this wine, the presence of the divine within the universe, and how this divine is recalled and remembered through dhikr to reach oneness. 
quotes, فَإِن ذُكْرَتْ فِي الْحَيْ أَسْبَحَ أَهْلُهُ نَشَّاوَى وَلَا عَارٌ أَلَيْهَا وَلَا إِثْمُ وَمِنْ بَيْنَ أَحْجَاءِ الْدِنَانِ تَسَاعِدَتْ وَلَمْ يَبَقَى مِنْهَا فِي الْحَقِيقَةِ إِلَّا إِسْمُ But if it is recalled among the tribe, the worthy ones are drunk by morn without shame or sin. From the depths of the jars it arose, though truly nothing remained save a name. It truly is a beautiful poem full of incredible imagery and imaginative metaphors. The wine ode has been read and commented on by Sufis and literatures alike and remains a classic to this day. But arguably his greatest achievement, and the second of the two poems he's most famous for, is an absolutely breathtaking poem known as Ataya al-Kubra, basically the great ode rhyming in the letter Ta, also known as Nazm al-Suluk, the poem of the Sufi way. This is often considered the longest mystical poem in the Arabic language, with a whopping 761 verses. But it isn't just famous for its length, but also for being one of the most profound expressions of the mystical path and divine oneness ever put into words. The poem is a kind of epic journey as we follow the author from humble beginnings as a passionate lover of God, eventually reaching stations of unity with the beloved, followed by breathtaking visions of the essential oneness underlying reality, coupled with advice on the spiritual path and Islamic practice along the way. This poem became very popular in Sufi circles shortly after its composition and has been commented on by some of the great Sufi figures in history. One of these commentators, Dawud al-Qaysari, another follower of the school of Ibn Arabi, wrote this about the poem, quote, No one has ever produced the likes of it in any age or epoch. Its expression, by nature, will never again be permitted as long as night turns to day, and it is impossible to describe it by explanation or characterize it by illusion. Very high praise indeed, but understandable. The poem is clearly written by someone who has a mastery of the Arabic language and its poetic tradition, being able to employ its vast well of meanings, word plays, and symbolism, as well as arguably someone who has clearly had first-hand experiences of these kinds of mystical states. This combination allows him to conjure some truly remarkable passages that put into words what ultimately cannot be put into words, but he seems to do that better than most, as Al-Qaysari seems to agree. He manages to encapsulate so many aspects of Islam and Sufism as it was practiced at the time, from the regular observances of Islamic law, to things like dhikr and sama, and even certain Sufi metaphysical ideas such as the Nur Muhammadiyah, the Muhammadan light, and other related ideas, all of it in this one poem. The scholar Michael Sell says, quote, The poem of the Sufi way is a microcosm of Islamic tradition at the time of Ibn al-Farid. The poem begins, like many other love poems, with a scene once again evoking the wine and the longing for the beloved that the poet experiences. Quote, <laughs> The palm of my eye handed me love's heady wine to drink, and my glass was a face of one revealing loveliness. 
Drunk by my glance, I caused my companions to suppose that drinking their wine had brought my heart joy. But by the dark pupils of the eyes I did without my drinking bowl. From the eyes fine qualities, not cool wine, came my intoxication. The first section of the poem expresses how the poet seeks union with his beloved, which is God. Interestingly, God as the beloved is referred to most often in the poem with the pronoun her, as the metaphor of lover and beloved runs through the whole narrative. However, the mood suddenly shifts around 85 verses in, as the beloved suddenly responds by totally rejecting the poet. He has boasted about his great love and the great devotions he has performed, piously withstanding pains and even delighting in them to reach a state of intimacy. But none of this is true. He is full of pride and really only loves himself, not her. Quote, You are love's ally, all right, but for its sake, not mine. As my proof, you have saved an attribute of yours. For you never loved me so long as you were not lost in me, and you will never be lost without my form in you revealed. It's after this diss that the true transformation takes place. The poet is ashamed and realizes his mistake. Now he has been brought low in complete submission. He realizes that the only way to truly reach his love's desire is to annihilate his own will completely, to where nothing remains in the heart at all but the beloved. And it is only then that he finally reaches union. Quote, to her I prayed my prayers at Abraham's station, and I witnessed in them her prayers to me. Both of us one worshipper, bowing to his reality in union in every prostration. The poem expresses this experience of unity and oneness throughout, in different ways and in different stages. Here, the poet has become completely annihilated, become entirely intoxicated and effaced in the reality of God, where there is no trace of multiplicity or self at all. This is the state of fana, or annihilation, as we talked about earlier. But after fana comes another stage, which is known as baqa, subsistence in God, remaining in God. At this point, the mystic returns from intoxication to a second can of sobriety. He comes back to himself and to the world of multiplicity, but now he sees it in a completely different way. He no longer views himself as an independent entity, but only as the self-disclosure of God. His self is no longer limited and finite, but the self with a capital S, that reality which encompasses everything in oneness. In this station, which is called that of al-Ahadiyya al-Jama'iyya, the all-comprehensive unity, the heart of the mystic, his true self, also becomes identified with the all-comprehensive principle that is the source of all things in the universe. What Ibn Arabi would later refer to as insan al-Kamil, the complete human being, but which Ibn al-Fadid himself refers to as the nur, the light, or the nur Muhammadiyya perhaps, the, the, the light of Muhammad, representing a kind of logos principle. In the end, it was within himself that the Beloved, or God, was to be found all along. And he now experiences that presence of God at all levels of reality. Quote, I sought her from myself. She was there all along. How strange that I had concealed her from me. Calling to myself from me to guide me by my voice to that part of me lost in my search. Me begging me to raise the screen by lifting up the veil, 
for I was my only means to me. I was gazing into the mirror of my beauty to see the perfection of my being in my contemplation of my face. And mouthing my name, I listened and leaned toward me, looking to one who could make me hear mention of me in my voice. In other words, from the state of being completely effaced in God, being nothing and experiencing nothing but that absolute oneness, the mystic returns to the world and instead experiences the presence of God everywhere. There is only God, and both within himself and in the world outside, he sees nothing but God. As the Quran says, quote, whichever way you turn, there is the face of God. Ibn al-Fadid says, quote, passion annihilated the attributes here between us, that had never abided there, so they passed away. And I found what I had cast away emerging to me, returning from me in abundance. The whole world is the manifestation of the names and attributes of God, and to the mystic who has reached union, he or she can see and experience nothing but God in the outer and inner worlds. The beauty of the universe is nothing but the beauty of God, a divine display and disclosure. Every sense experience becomes a kind of dhikr, or recollection, where God is witnessed and tasted. Quote, The north wind guides her memory to my spirit whenever it comes from her by night, rising up at dawn. And my ear is pleased when her memory is roused at noon by dusky doves on branches warbling and gently cooing. My eye is blessed when a lightning flash relays to it from her, thought of her in the evening. And I taste and touch her memory in vessels of wine when at night they come round to me. Thus my heart reveals to me her memory within, but what the sense messengers delivered from without. It is some truly remarkable expressions of unitive experience and a beautiful way of putting into words some of the core teachings of Sufism. Love is a theme that runs through the whole poem, as you can see. It is love that drives the lover towards his beloved. It is love that leads him to forsake and forget his own self, to become annihilated in the self of reality. And it is that love which permeates the heart of the enlightened mystic as he experiences that love as the nature of all things. All the world is made of love, and that love which is realized is extended to all of the world. Since one sees nothing but God, one loves everything. An infinite love of nature and the creatures of the world, which is identical to a love of the essential oneness underlying it all. In some ways, it is this love, with all that it entails, that lies at the core of reality. In the famous Hadith Qudsi, God says, or Muhammad says, that God says, I was a hidden treasure and I loved to be known, so I created the world that I might be known. God thus creates the world out of that love to be known. And literally, the word fahbabtu is used, so it is from the root hub, which means love. God loves to be known, so he creates the world to be known and to be loved. Love is thus the essential force behind all of creation. And that love is reciprocal. Just as God loves his creation and the manifestation of that hidden treasure, so God's creation loves him. The purpose of creation in the Hadith was that God should be known. And to love is to know intimately. So in a way, when we love God and know him, the whole purpose of creation is fulfilled. The tension or reciprocal love between the Absolute and his own manifestation to himself. This becomes relevant in the text as the poet has reached that state of unity and oneness, thus seeing reality for what it is. 
In an absolutely breathtaking section from the poem, the poet in this state becomes identified with every lover seeking his beloved, each instance of which is a representation of that essential loving movement of the universe. In my opinion, this has to be one of the most profound and beautiful expressions of oneness, mysticism, or simply devotion ever composed by a human being. As Ibn al-Farid says, quote, Every atom of me witnessing her loveliness with every glance of every shining eye. All my subtle words adoring her with every tongue profused with praise. Smelling her sweet scent with every fiber of every nose breathing in the rising air. Every bit of me hearing her word with the ear of all hoping to hear. Every part of me kissing her veil with every mouth in each touching kiss. Had she unrolled my body, she would have seen every essence with every heart holding every love. Huge props to the late scholar Emil Homerain for this beautiful translation into English as well. There's of course a lot more to go through when it comes to the Ta'i al-Kubra. It is a very long poem after all, but these are some of the core themes and movements of this poem. And as I hope you can see and agree with, it is an incredible piece of work. One that would ensure Ibn al-Fadid's reputation as probably the most renowned and famous Sufi poet to ever write in the Arabic language. Ibn al-Fadid passed away in the year 1235 at a meager 54 years old. He was buried at the Qarafa Cemetery at the foot of Mount Muqattam, where he used to go on his retreats as a youngster. His shrine still stands there today and has throughout history been a popular pilgrimage site and a place where Sufi gatherings took place. As we said earlier, shortly after his death, his works were deeply studied by some significant groups of Sufis. In particular, the Sufi master and philosopher Sadruddin al-Qunawi, the stepson and primary disciple-slash-successor to Muhyiddin ibn Arabi, had a great love for Ibn al-Fadid's poetry. While they never met in person, al-Qunawi and his own students, who resided in Konya in Turkey, traveled to Egypt and stayed there for a number of years, during which they primarily studied the poems of Ibn al-Fadid and the Ta'i al-Kubra in particular. Sadruddin al-Qunawi would hold lectures and sessions where he gave his interpretation and commentary on the Ta'iya. To him, this poem expressed in verse really well the teachings of his master Ibn Arabi, which became later known as Wahdat al-Wujud, the unity or the oneness of being. It is as a result of these lectures that the first commentaries on the poem started to emerge, written by the immediate students of Qunawi himself. The very first of these commentaries, written by Sa'id al-Din al-Fargani, has become a famous work in its own right, and it has been said that the introduction to that commentary, the Muqaddimah, is itself one of the best and clearest expressions of the school of Wahdat al-Wujud ever written. Other commentaries followed, most of them by the students of Qunawi or by later direct followers of that school, which is often referred to as the Akbari school, after Ibn Arabi's title as the Sheikh al-Akbar. Afif al-Din al-Tilimsani, Daud al-Qaysari, and much later on, Abdul Ghani al-Nablusi all wrote famous commentaries that became influential. For this reason, Ibn al-Farid has been strongly connected with the school of Ibn Arabi in particular, since it was members from this school that were the primary commentators on his works. Even I have relied to some degree on Akbari interpretations in my comments on the Ta'i al-Kubra in this episode. But there's no evidence that Ibn al-Farid ever met Ibn Arabi or that he adheres to his particular metaphysical ideas. In other words, Qunawi and his students probably projected the teachings of the great master onto Ibn al-Farid. But after all, when we read the poetry itself, you can 
clearly understand why. While he might not follow the particular details of Akbari metaphysics, it's clear that he holds a worldview that is very similar in its emphasis on a kind of monistic theology and his ideas of oneness, all ideas that were very popular in Sufi circles in general. In any case, the Akbarians found in Ibn al-Farid's poetry expressions very similar to the ideas of Wahdat al-Wujud, and we can certainly argue that they were both trying to explain the same thing in slightly different ways. Still, we should remember that Ibn al-Farid's poetry stands on its own, and it should be read to some degree on its own premises, so to say. A poetry that strikes us as not only incredibly technically proficient and, and impressive in terms of the Arabic language and how he uses that and the poetic traditions and all that, but also as a beautiful and profound expression of some of the core teachings and, and aspects of Sufism. Omar ibn al-Farid, the Sultan of Lovers, is still remembered today across the Middle East. Particularly in Egypt and its surrounding regions, he is remembered as the most popular and influential Sufi poet in history, as well as an accomplished Gnostic and Sufi saint responsible for many miracles. His shrine in Cairo is still visited by many people today, and an annual Mawlid is celebrated to commemorate his life. His Sufi tradition and love for Dhikr and Sama has lived on at his shrine. Indeed, the famous 18th century Syrian Sufi Abdul Ghani al-Nablusi, which we mentioned earlier as one of the main Akbari commentators on Ibn al-Farid's works, describes in his travelogue how he visited Egypt and the shrine of Ibn al-Farid in particular, where he took part in an intense and ecstatic session of Sama, or musical audition. While such gatherings aren't as common anymore, it shows that the legacy of the great poet has lived on throughout history. His poems are still sung at Maulid celebrations in Egypt as well as on music recordings and in other circumstances. The great literary tradition of Sufism cannot be talked about without mentioning Ibn al-Farid, whose poem of the Sufi way stands as one of the crowning achievements of mystical literature. I'll see you next time.